Untie the boat, let the wind blow you where the wind blows. Not by not, let the cords unravel, let the corpse travel on its course. Not by not, time will sow you across the fields of endless force. Now you're on your way in the sacred. Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. This is a podcast about MDMA-assisted therapy. My name is Derek Davda, and I am very happy to be recording another solo session. And this one is on safety, and I'm really happy that I have found a moment here to record this podcast because I wanted to do it for a while now. I think safety is one of the most important aspects of MDMA-assisted therapy. The reason for it is that for the first time in this therapy, we will be using mind-altering medication. This is very important. It creates a whole host of issues to consider for the client, for people around the client, for you as a therapist. I will be doing a little bit of a synthesis of everything I have learned about safety here, but I will also talk about some of the more subtle ideas that you might not hear in trainings that are available right now, but which I think are extremely important. MDMA-assisted therapy is such a beautiful therapy with such a potentially humongous benefits, but we should not be naive about how it works. We shouldn't get too, too excited and then make mistakes for which we will personally pay, for which clients will pay, and for which the community around the clients might pay. This is not a medical advice, so I'm not condoning any any sort of experimentation with MDMA here. MDMA, so let's start with the basics of the substance. MDMA is a very powerful drug and it's dangerous in high doses. So the dosage is of utmost importance. Another thing is about uh, purity of MDMA. Of course, when you get MDMA medically in the future, it will be pure. But what you are getting on the street, uh, you just don't know what you're getting. And there is some serious, serious risks associated with that. Another thing with, you know, using MDMA in other contexts, mixing it with other things, like some people mix it with alcohol. Holy mag! Can't think about a better prescription for depression. Another thing is about SSRIs. You know, people who use MDMA have to be off SSRIs because SSRIs work on the same serotonin system and then you're risking the serotonin depletion. But also MDMA won't be as effective uh, if you are on SSRIs. The frequency of use is another issue. You can't use MDMA very often for it to be effective. And of course, it will not be good for you to use it very often. Again, we're talking about the depletion and serotonin that can happen with more frequent uses. In terms of the medical exclusionary criteria, to be honest, it's all very new and we don't have enough research. And for now, for now, what researchers have done, they have excluded people with uh, high blood pressure and heart disease. And it's because MDMA is a methamphetamine and it increases blood pressure and, and heart rate. Pregnancy, don't use MDMA during pregnancy. Don't use MDMA or MDMA therapy during uh, acute alcohol withdrawal. There are some more specific medical criteria that you will be screened 
for, for MDMA-assisted therapy during the kind of an intake screening process. Now in terms of psychological, psychiatric diagnosis or issues, again, it's the same issue. We just don't know who should be excluded at this point. The studies that were done so far have excluded people with more severe problems with emotion regulation and psychological disturbances such as bipolar, psychotic, schizoaffective. There has been some research recently that um, psychopathic narcissistic people, there's a question about that, whether they benefit in the same way. And uh, the important part is that, according to MAPS studies, people with just dissociative tendencies, not dissociative identity disorder, that's, that's a rule out, but dissociative tendencies, which in some way are a part of nearly all trauma. Uh, you know, dissociations associated with the dorsal vagal shutdown complex, and it's um, very common. It's actually at, uh, at the heart of, of difficulties that come with trauma. But in any case, that, that's good news because, you know, that coping mechanism, that protective mechanism of dissociation of shutdown actually does not allow uh, much of uh, positive processing, integration of uh, information, of psychological change, etc. It's a very strong defensive mechanism. Again, so medically and psychologically, we will have to see. For now, we are keeping it on the safe side, and that's how it's going to be. And then as studies roll in and say, okay, this is safe, then we might start including more and more people. And then in terms of the side effects during the session, there will be some side effects. They depend on the person. Generally, the experience of the dosing session is very loving and pleasant and positive and accepting. And, you know, you feel connection and openness and more clarity, perhaps. But other experiences are possible as well. You can feel deep sadness. You, you can feel difficult feelings of all sorts. You can feel anxiety. You can feel kind of a sort of disconnection and uh, distance. Physically, jaw tension is common. You can feel agitated, perhaps, unsettled, etc., etc. There is a host of experiences that you can have, side effects usually, uh, with proper dosages, etc. These are usually not a big problem. Positive experiences generally override these difficulties and also therapeutically, if you're connecting with some sadness, some vulnerability, that's a part of a therapeutic process, generally not only with MDMA, and MDMA only speeds it up, so it can be very positive. Of course, give, if you can handle it, if it falls within your window of tolerance. And the thing about the window of tolerance is that MDMA creates such a positive, protective safety factor that increases your window of tolerance. That's the whole beauty of MDMA that actually does that, that it allows you to feel connected with yourself, with the world more compassionate and connect with yourself much more to all parts of yourself. But for some people this might be unbearable. Some people might not want that. So again, it is important for people to be informed ahead of time that this is a radically mind-altering experience and that they have to be prepared not only for a new experience, but they have to be prepared to change. People don't know how they will change because you don't know what you don't know. But the idea of change, the willingness 
the openness to it has to be there because otherwise you might be surprised and unpleasantly surprised. So again, the importance of informed consent, of dealing with it ahead of time. Now, the after the session. This is the biggest area here. This is something that I want to emphasize here the most. So let's start with the most obvious. What happens after the session? First of all, obviously, we know that some depletion might happen, serotonin depletion. Again, the studies show that if it's done properly, that it's not a huge deal, but it is commonly reported, and first one or two days are most acute, and then it can last for, for a bit. And that emotional depletion might have to do with serotonin the first couple of days or so, but after that stabilizes, you will also have a lot to process. So there, these are like sort of like tectonic shifts that happen within you. And now you have to restabilize your system. And so again, this might be very difficult, especially afterwards. We're not protected by a serotonin boost and oxytocin boost to the same extent. There might be a lot of thoughts. Afterwards, there might be a sense of vulnerability. Again, therapeutically, a very beneficial state if it's processed therapeutically in a safe, supportive environment, whether it's therapeutically in therapy or with other people who are safe and supportive of your process. Now you're getting into trickier terrain. You might actually get disappointed with the world, disappointed with others. Now that you come closer to yourself, you might see things you haven't seen before. And if you see things you haven't seen before, it's not always a good thing. If you've had those defenses, those filters that kept you maybe even closer to people around you, and now you see it in a slightly different way. Now, let this sink in. Think about it. What are the consequences of that? First of all, it's so important that we figure out how to best, as therapists, support people afterwards. Guldolan for example, who I spoke with recently, listened to her podcast. She's, she's one of the most brilliant thinkers around. She thinks that ideally it would be like a month retreat where you can really just be with yourself in a safe environment, being uh, supported by others, allowing yourself to process your thoughts, your emotions. A month is a lot. You know, it's very costly. The way I think from all I I understand is that the first two days are extremely important. The first two days we should have integration sessions, ideally, or at least one integration session during these first two days. The day after, very important. The second day, very important. And you know, these are the days that you can also have a little bit of a low. So supporting you through that low would be a very good thing. So you're not just leaving dosing session and then you have to deal with it yourself. So again, let's assume people are, were informed before and they gave consent that they are ready to change. They are ready, open to the unexpected. And that's good. But then what about others? This to me is one of the topics that is underemphasized in training. What about others? Now a person comes to therapy, has a wonderful connection with the therapist, feels supported, and then undergoes a process of change. Uh, Guldolan is talking about the opening of the window for social bonding. You open now. The window is open. 
the wind blows and you're ready to connect. Well, the question is, others have not been on this journey of change. So you can't expect others to change in any way. Now, the big question is, will others be supportive of your process? Do others support you as you are? Or, as it is the case so often, do they have agendas for you? Do they want you to be in a certain way? They have expectations. There are communities out there that don't want any change and they don't want people to stick out. The whole harmony within those communities is dependent on following on individuals following the, the communal tenets. So what happens in those situations? Well, there is a, a big risk of harm. There is a big risk of alienation. You are like a child and you're going back to these environments and these people might not provide you with the support and love that you need. So you might feel alienated. You might actually shut down. Again, your shutdown system might get activated, which you can get re-traumatized. You can collapse into a depression. This is a very important point. So when we have connection with the therapist, safety with the therapist, but we don't have that same safety outside the session, it's very risky. And it's risky in a number of ways. Therapists in MDMA-assisted therapy have to be extremely careful about therapeutic boundaries, especially in MDMA-assisted therapy. So we all know that. What it means is that you have to be very clear what the roles are. And again, from the beginning of the therapy, this should be a part of the consent, the informed consent. Hey, look, this is what's going to happen. You might feel very connected with the therapist and it might be difficult to end therapy and you might find yourself struggling, being thrown back into the world that is not as perfect as your therapist, assuming that therapists will be perfect in supporting you for who you are, with safety, etc. So those attachments to therapists that are formed during MDMA sessions can be very powerful. And we have to manage those attachments extremely skillfully. So that's why we have two therapists during dosing sessions. That's why we have consultations between the therapists after the session, so that these two therapists, therapists are humans as well, so that therapists don't slip into some sort of an attachment that would violate the role of a caretaker. We are not to be friends with our clients. This might be controversial for some people, but I think it's very risky to mix the roles. There's very clear ethical guidelines about dual relationships, and I think these guidelines are there for a reason. But when it comes to MDMA-assisted therapy, these guidelines should be reinforced even stronger, but not in a way that we want to reject the clients. We actually have to be prepared to not reject them, to process this right from the beginning to the end, what it will be like for them to go into the world and to finish this therapy. This therapy will not be ongoing therapy, most likely. Most likely, MDMA-assisted therapy is over. The way I see it is an insertion into more ongoing kind of therapy and counseling that people have. So that's one very important thing. Put that in the informed consent process. Another very important aspect of this is the others. We should consider others much more seriously than we consider them now. 
even in the screening stage, I think it would be unethical to provide somebody with MDMA-assisted therapy and then send them back into the world where they have no supports. That's just too dangerous. You know, it would be like, metaphorically speaking, like you, you're sending a child into the world that will not protect the child, that does not have enough love for the child, that does not have enough unconditional acceptance for the child, for the child's process, you know? So that's one thing, screening, making sure that there is something there. If there isn't anything there, can we create something out there? Is there any person? You know, at minimum, the person should have somebody there. If, it, if the person is lonely already, fine, maybe that's okay. But if the person is implicated in unhealthy relationships, family, religious communities, more conservative communities, uh, marriages, we really have to consider that, in my mind, ideally, we would involve some of the key people from those support systems in, in the initial stages of therapy, in the informed consent and in preparation. Of course, it's tricky because in our culture here, individual-focused culture, so the informed consent is given by the individual, which we have to honor. A person wants that without an involvement of others. We have to honor it. But we have to be aware of the risks. During MDMA-assisted therapy, some radical changes can happen. Your values can change. You might become more self-expressive. You might express your needs stronger. You might become more open to experiences, to the world. Maybe you will be more into truth and honesty. Maybe your feeling of self-determination and agency will increase. All these sound like really good things. They sound like really good things to me. They might sound like really good things to you. But they are not adaptive things in more conservative communities that don't privilege individual, that privilege the communal values. And while we might believe liberal democracy, individual rights, individual expression, growth, self-actualization, self-transcend, all this is the most valuable thing. It's not up to us to decide for, for other people how they live their lives and what values they follow. And how do we work with that? And remember that we can't provide therapy that risks re-traumatization. These things have to be considered during the screening and preparation, not afterwards. That's too late already. The solutions here might be that we could involve key, key people, the ones that have most influence in the system. Maybe that can happen in the preparatory stage, so that these people feel included. And then we can discuss how they could support the clients. The worst situations would be if the clients, open and vulnerable, return back to abusive, controlling relationships. That's where therapy can actually completely backfire. Okay, so let's take it one step further. What if the client decides to cut ties with close ones? Divorce, disruption in family dynamics. Usually this will happen because the client got more connected with themselves and now they see clearly how they have been neglecting their own needs, allowing others to control them, abuse them, this, that. Who do you think, 
let's say this happens, who do you think these people will be angry with? I think you guessed it right. It will be you, which comes with ethics complaints, lawsuits, and all sorts of major headaches. And to some extent you will be responsible if you have not provided clear, informed consent. Rick Doblin mentioned that what he heard from underground therapists is that the most complaints about psychedelic therapies, they don't come from the people who took the therapy, but the complaints come from others who are unhappy about the changes. So even if you do amazing therapy, you can get sued because others are unhappy about the changes that are occurring in the person and how destabilizing that is for the entire system that the person is a part of. I think MDMA-assisted therapy is irreducibly interpersonal. It's irreducibly about relationships. Initially, it will be approved for trauma, but healing trauma and healing relationships is more or less the same thing. Trauma usually comes from the violation of the safety that relationships provide. That creates a vulnerability for being traumatized. People who are in safe relationships, who are protected, much less vulnerable to developing PTSD from traumatic experiences. PTSD is not about what kind of traumatic experiences you experienced, but it's about the process that happened to you when you experience those experiences. It is about what happened to you, how you responded and dealt and coped with that. In terms of primary relationships, spouses, marriages, partnerships, I think both people should be involved in MDMA-assisted therapy. And I'm saying this kind of in terms of the, the future because MDMA-assisted therapy will be approved for individual trauma right now. But I don't see any benefits from doing individual treatment if you could do relationship treatment because then both people are on the same journey. Both people experience the same openness and then both people work to actually heal trauma as they heal their relationship. Trauma is bound to affect relationships negatively. I really hope that in the future this is the direction we are going. There's a lot of accounts of MDMA-assisted therapy being extremely helpful for relationships. And as clinicians, if we understand that point, we should be making more noise about that. To achieve this, it will be a shift in a, in a paradigm to focus healing on relationships directly rather than on individuals would be one of the biggest, most important cultural shifts that we can make in how we approach healing. I have a feeling we are not too close to that shift, but hey, in the least, if we can't do couples therapy, we should have a safe person involved in therapy. And that safe person will be the one that will pick the person up from MDMA-assisted therapy dosing session. That safe person should be involved in at least one preparation session to prime them to providing the best support they can. Going out there alone might be good for some people, but it might be devastating for others. So the last little point I mentioned is the afterglow. The afterglow after the dosing session can last according to Gould Dolan's rough estimates, anywhere from two weeks to as long as 50 weeks. This has to do with the oxytocin levels and the oxytocin levels returning back to the normal levels. Oxytocin, by the way, as you probably know, is the hormone responsible for kind of being socially open, interested in social relationship, wanting to connect. 
social relationships acquire more importance. So it, that's, that's one of the hormones that is implicated in the reopening of this, of this critical period for social bonding that MDMA provides and just opening this ability to, to heal relationally. One thing about Afterglow is that you're not quite aware, but now you might have changed quite a bit. Your values might have changed, your connection with yourself might have changed, and you might want to make some decisions. The best idea here is to put it in contract that people don't make any major decision for at least a month after a dosing session. Don't get your divorce right away. Let it process. Don't make any big financial decisions. Don't break up with your family. Maybe spend that time processing outside of those contexts that are uh, unsupportive. Find supportive places. Find ways of integrating uh, individually with your diary with other people, it would be great to have support groups that are ongoing for people who have undergo MDMA-assisted therapy. There's lots of ways to find support, but don't make any decisions, and that should be a part of the informed consent. Okay, well, I'm honored to be a part of this uh, conversation. MAPS just submitted their application to FDA, first ever psychedelic psychotherapy. The application for MDMA-assisted therapy to be used medically and we're expecting that this will be approved in 2024. Incredible news. This is the first therapy that has ever gone to FDA, first psychedelic therapy. We are likely to see this therapy come to you in 2024. It's coming up. Are we ready? What do you think? Are we ready? Give me a shout. Here at Enhanced Therapy Institute, we are doing training groups now for Manitoba healthcare professionals. So we're going to have some fun with that. If you find value in this podcast, please share it with others. I will keep doing it if you want me to do it. And um, that's it. I wish you all a great holiday season and all of that, whatever you're celebrating. Here at Enhanced Therapy Institute, we are hoping for more love and more peace in the world and wish you the same.